episode 83 of some like it scott i'm scott harvey and i'm joined as always by my co-host scott shelton today on the podcast we are finally back to reviewing a new 2020 release as we road trip with tom holland and chris pratt in pixar's onward but first how are you scott and are there any movies you've seen in the interim since we last reviewed a new release that you want to briefly recommend to people man new releases that i've seen since our last when was our last recording it's been a while was it birds of prey was that our last I think it was Birds Prey, yeah. Yeah, I have seen a couple movies since then. I Yeah, I guess since then I've seen actually a whole bunch. I've seen Sonic and The Assistant, which is kind of a, a smaller or more narrow release, not a wide release movie, I don't think. I have uh, saw I saw Emma this past weekend as well. I mean, really, Scott, not to hide the eight ball, I think that the movie that we're about to talk about today and Emma are probably the two best movies that I've seen in uh, 20, 2020 so far. I have not yet seen The Invisible Man. I have not seen The Way Back. I think both of those are are contenders for up there in the conversation about the kind of the best movies of of twenty twenty so far. So there are a couple caveats, but I mean, really, if if Emma is is out near you now, I mean, it, it's slowly getting a wider release. That's a delightful enough movie, but really, Scott, again, not to hide the eight ball, I think Onward is the best movie I've seen in twenty twenty so far. So really excited to talk about that today. Well, we'll see whether I agree or not. I agree about the fact that um, Emma is also an excellent choice uh, for a movie for you to check out right now. I you know, was looking forward to that one. Jane Austen adaptation. Um, Anya Taylor-Joy is really, really good as Emma. And it's just it's a fun romp. And, and so that uh, I would definitely recommend that. I have seen The Invisible Man. If you are subscribed to our newsletter, you could have read my review um, in last week's newsletter. And, and I also really enjoyed The Invisible Man. I think it has a, a few issues, but overall, it's a really smart um, and, you know, sophisticated horror uh, mo- slash monster movie, which, um, you know, is becoming becoming a trend in, in recent years, even early in the year. Like this, this is kind of the time of the year when we um, got us last year. And I think this movie uh, it has a similar vibe in that it's it's a horror movie, but it's also scaring you in other ways. It's 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 a. Uh, hitting on some pretty realistic themes, particularly around centering around abusive relationships. Um, and I think what, what Lee Wanell does is really interesting in that film. Um, so if you haven't checked it out, a lot of people have, it's, it's doing really well at the box office. Uh, definitely recommend the invisible man and Emma as well. I think that both of those are really solid um, choices out right now. And yeah, the way back is probably gonna be the next one. for me. Yeah. And I mean, you talk about doing well at the box office, everything's always relative to your budget. And when you have a budget, like what an invisible man does, which is just a few million dollars, which of course is what Blumhouse is good at, then generally speaking, you're going to do pretty well. I mean, it, it's hard for a, you know, a, a, a shoestring, it's not shoestring budget because it is several million dollars, but it's hard for a mid single digit million dollar budget movie from Blumhouse with a cast like Elizabeth Moss with a subject like, you know, a universal horror uh, monster movie to, to do so poorly, especially when everything about this film indicates that it, you know, even if it is an age-old story, quote unquote, it's going to have a new take. It's going to be something fresh, and I'm really looking forward to seeing that. I'm almost certain I will see that in the next week. 
yeah, and I'll be interested to hear your thoughts uh, when you do, Scott. But um, anyway, I think it is it is now time that we uh, move onward to our review of Onward. Uh, the first of two scheduled Pixar releases this year, Onward comes courtesy of Monsters University director Dan Scanlon, and it is a fantastical road trip adventure starring Tom Holland and Chris Pratt as elf brothers Ian and Barley. As the film opens, the brothers are still reeling from the recent loss of their father, particularly Ian, who is celebrating his 16th birthday. When their mother, voiced by Julia Louis-Dreyfus, brings the brothers a gift that their father left them before he died, they are drawn into a world of magic. When they attempt to conjure a spell to bring their father back to life for a single day, the spell backfires, conjuring only their father's legs. And in order to bring back their entire father to life before the 24-hour clock expires, Ian and Barley must embark on a magical quest through history in Barley's rundown van, Guinevere. Scott, is there magic only in the plot of Onward, or does this adventure too have the special spark which has made Pixar such an enduring name in the world of animation? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it does. I absolutely think that it, that it does. There was something about this movie that really really was quite charming and and fun and adventurous. I mean, there's no other really way to put it. And and because it is this adventure film, I don't know if the trailers necessarily sold you uh, really on the qualities of the adventure that you were going to have. And I think that was the part that maybe in terms of the plot, and we'll talk more about it later, of course, that was the most surprising. I, I mean, I was. I was just kind of taken aback by how much of an adventure movie this really was. I, I guess I didn't really know what to expect, but I guess the amount of adventure that we got out of that was something that was an unexpected surprise and definitely in a positive way. And with that, and along with a couple other components of the plot, like, you know, you should almost expect in every Pixar movie, there is the, there are a few emotional high notes, especially towards the end of the movie. And so as much as I might've been skeptical in the first 20 to 30 minutes, I wasn't totally all in on this movie i will say at the beginning uh, i i liked what it what it was kind of showing but you know i wasn't yet kind of fully invested like i might be in some of my favorite pixar movies i think the quest that these two brothers go on and the story that it tells and, the, and then the conclusion that it comes to i think the last 30 minutes of this film are, are really special i think right up there with some some of the best pixar movies and it really does recover from what might be an average start you know, for for a Pixar film rather than a, a home run start, you know, like the likes of Up or something like that, that just starts on such a high note um, and then carries that through the whole movie. This movie starts maybe on a little bit of a lower foot. Uh, a, a, I almost said lighter foot just to make a pun, but a lower foot here. Uh, and I think it really accelerates and, and gains momentum over the course of the film. And by the time the ending does come around, and I do want to be careful not to spoil anything yet, like, man, I, I fought back tears a couple times uh, in, in the climax and the finale of of this movie and you know, not every Pixar movie I've been, I've been rewatching some of the Pixar movies, not some I've been trying to go through systematically and watch all the Pixar movies and, and not all of them bring you to tears. And this one, this one brought me to tears and that's saying something. Yeah, no, it's, it's a highly emotional movie for sure, which I was not expecting. And, you know, you, you say that maybe the trailers didn't exactly let on what kind of movie this was going to be. Um, and I think that that is, that's absolutely true. The trailers didn't let on, what type of movie this was going to be. Primarily, the trailers didn't let on that this was going to be a really good movie um, because the trailers were terrible for this movie. Uh, in particular, that first trailer that came out, I remember thinking, oh gosh, I am not looking forward to this movie at all. And even though maybe the second trailer was a little bit better, I think that um, I my, my expectations were certainly muted going into this. Um, but I, I guess I would disagree slightly. I, I thought I was grabbed from the very beginning of the movie. I think 
right? It, you know, it's, it sinks those that it, it's emotional hook in you from the beginning. Uh, you know, again, you learn about their father dying. There's a really nice scene that I liked where uh, Ian, the Tom Holland character, uh, is listening to a tape of his father and pretending to have a conversation with his father. He's obviously listened yeah. to the tape so many times that he knows where his father's going to speak. Um, and it's it's a really moving scene that I, I liked a lot. Uh, and so, you know, that kind of drew me in from the beginning because I'm not someone who, you know, is a huge like fantasy or, you know, mysticism type person or whatever. So I was not looking forward to that aspect of the movie. But I think the movie wisely starts out again on an emotional note, uh, you know, just with these themes of family that you see in a lot of Pixar movies um, and, and hooks you that way before really getting into the, like the, you know, fantastical elements of the story and everything. So that really worked for me. And I was concerned because I, because I knew it was headed there. Right. And I was a little concerned that maybe this was going to pull an up a little bit and start out really high. And then kind of just once the actual plot kicked in, um, you know, lose its way a little bit, or just, just not be quite as interesting or emotional as that beginning of the movie is. But that really wasn't the case for most of the movie, uh, even though, you know, the plot, I think, does get a little bit MacGuffin-y at times. I think that overall, this, the story kept me kept me hooked and they didn't lean. They, they don't go too deep into the fantasy stuff. I think, you know, what you're what you're getting here is is pretty basic, you know, Harry Potter spell casting and stuff like that. Um, and, and all the while, even while all of the, you know, this this mythological questing is going on, it's keeping you anchored to that emotional uh, core the whole time not only the uh, relationship between these brothers and their their late father but also the relationship between the brothers themselves you know it, it starts off as a movie about these two guys uh, dealing with the loss of their father and uh, it, it you know that remains a theme constantly but as they embark on this quest you know they they learn things about each other and their relationship with each other as well that I think really struck a chord with me as someone who does have a brother who does have a close relationship with their brother. Um, I think that I was always going to respond to that, that sort of theme. And, and maybe that's not a, a relationship that we've necessarily seen fully explored in other Pixar movies. So I appreciate, appreciated that as well. And yeah, overall, I, I was really, really um, impressed and surprised by how much I enjoyed this movie. I think it's one of my favorite Pixar films all the way going back to Ratatouille, to be honest with you. Um, there's been a lot of good movies in there. I mean, Inside Out is really strong. Toy Story 4 and Toy Story 3 uh, are, are really solid entries. But uh, this movie, you know, kept me captivated throughout. And, and really, it never lost that emotional hook. Uh, and I think that the two actor, voice actors, I think Chris Pratt and Tom Holland, um, are really perfectly chosen for their roles in this movie. So I think this is uh, an absolutely great uh, entry and it, it in the Pixar canon and proves that that Pixar still has the magic after all these years. Yeah, I, I think this is one of those things that we're in a year where we're getting you know this this is the year we get two Pixar films. They try to I think they really feel like they try to cycle on and off where they do basically three movies every two years. And this being a year where you're getting two original uh, pieces of work here, you're not getting a sequel. And, you know, you're not getting Toy Story four. You're not getting The Incredibles two. You're not getting. Um, I mean, Coco was original, obviously, but it, they've been hitting sequels like Cars 3, Finding Finding Dory. We, we, there have been a bunch of sequels over the last few years because those are relatively safer bets when you know you have an audience for that IP. And, and to see them, you know, with this particular IP, with this new IP, build something that, you know, we weren't super anticipating, uh, at, at least not in a... In a in a positive way after we saw the trailers, like we weren't super enamored by either of the trailers that they released. Um, the second one was better than the first, 
But I think that um, this was really something that that took me by surprise. And I, you know, I will say by the way that I I don't think the beginning is is as strong as the rest of them, or as you do, as you feel that it is. I do think that scene that you're calling out is the one that did finally emotionally hook me. I guess for me, I just didn't really view that as part of like the beginning part of the movie. I mean, that I could be totally wrong, but that felt like that was like half an hour into the movie already, but maybe, maybe it wasn't. Um, maybe I just lost track of time there. But I was thinking more from you know the initial scenes that you get uh, between the different family members. I'll, I'll be honest, like I didn't super like Barley as a character, probably for the first uh, third, a third of the film, and then he grows on you. And then I think obviously the role that he plays in the broader narrative becomes so important. And I mean, throughout the movie, but especially in the second half for me, and, and really begins to click and, and work. And by the end, uh, I thought I thought he was a, 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 an amazing character, a really, really well uh, played out character uh, on all from from several different respects. I think the lack of engagement with that character, and maybe even to an extent, somewhat a little bit turned off by that character at first is, is what held it back. But once they actually set off on this adventure, once you do get that emotional hook, and once a couple of things here and there happen as well that tie into that, I think that that is something that's really, uh, it does grab you. And the adventure, I, I think that they take the adventure seriously enough, but not too serious to really play off of, you know, the emotional narrative that's happening around it. The, the thing that I think, is the best part of the film, which is the emotional narrative. It's never really put on the back burner uh, to focus on the story, which I think is what kind of what you're alluding to with with something like Up, which, you know, it's it's been a while since I've seen that one. It has been a minute. Um, But it it feels like the emotional weight of that narrative gets put on the back burner a little bit for the central part of the film or, you know, act two, if you want to call it that, um, the the meat and bones of the the plot. But this doesn't, ha- it doesn't happen because it always stays front of mind. And I think part of that is because you have this really oddball third, you know, central character in the film that's, you know, not really a speaking role. And uh, it, I don't know if it's too much of a spoiler to just go out and say it, but the fact that it's the lower half of their dad's body, that's this kind of, you know, along for the ride is the constant reminder of why they're doing this thing. And so you never lose track of, of the emotional weight of all these, uh, for both these characters, right? For both uh, Barley and for Ian the emotional importance and and sometimes that emotional importance is also a point of conflict between the two of them i think everything just ties together really well in that sense yeah yeah talking about barley and i think you know him as a character and him growing on you i think he's meant to grow on you right because we are seeing this from ian's perspective for the most part he's the de facto protagonist and ian also finds the character kind of annoying in the beginning you know he he rolls up to school to pick him up and kind of ruins a moment of, of social engagement, maybe for Ian. Um, and, you know, he he's the kind of uh, schlubby older brother who, uh, you know, the mom remarks at one point that, oh, this is the longest gap year ever. Right. He's he's staying at home. He doesn't really have much of a purpose in his life. He's playing this like D&D type adventure game or whatever. Um I think we are meant to sort of do, give this character a little side eye at the beginning. But then again, as they embark on the quest, I think as Ian's feelings become more complicated, so do ours, I think, about this character. So I thought that worked pretty well. And yeah, you know, as far as the beginning of the movie goes, I was kind of thinking of the beginning as before they set out on the quest, I guess, maybe time wise, you know, if, if you were to break it up into if you if you were to figure out how much time that took, maybe it w- it's no longer the beginning. Maybe it does take a half hour or so, but that's just kind of how I was looking at it. And, I, and either way, I do think that scene happens in the first 
15, 20 minutes, but regardless, I think we're agreed that it's a really strong scene. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think for me, the point where I get engaged is that scene. And, and I kind of thought of like, the, maybe it's not even act one, right? It's like the, the prologue of the film where you're getting to meet these characters for the first time. I get, I didn't feel it was super engaging, but as soon as, you know, the, the first big plot point happens, like they, they cast the spell and, and bring the dad back, you know, I think that is, it's totally fair to say that's still part of the, you know, the first, the first act of the movie. I think that that's when you start to get hooked, at least for me. That's when I got hooked. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great moment in the movie. Um, and, and with that, Scott, I think we can move on and talk a little bit about our protagonists here. Um, obviously, two actors, two very well-known actors, movie stars. Uh, I think you can definitely say based on uh, their their roles in the MCU primarily, um, the, and that is Tom Holland and Chris Pratt, of course, here uh, playing a little bit of a buddy relationship. These brothers, um, they don't have a ton of scenes together really in the MCU, um, but here that you know they have to play off each other. And and what did you think about their performances, their voice performances, their chemistry with each other as brothers? Do you think they fit their respective roles really well? Yeah, I mean, I thought Tom Holland was was great. I think it's really, really, really interesting to see if he becomes this really like very prominent voice actor as well as you know actual you know uh, live action actor as well because he was in Spies in Disguise, one of the main roles there. Just a, you know that was just two two months ago uh, over the Christmas period with Will Smith. He was in that in that animated movie. I'm not sure if he's in any other ones up, upcoming, but he's had two back to back here, and I think that you know Spies in Disguise is gonna always gonna be a flying a little bit more under the radar than a Pixar film, but he does a really great job in, in both of them. I think he's really great for this role. He, he just has that, I don't know, it's something special in his voice to really bring this particular character to life, something that he probably uh, gained and has honestly refined just playing the kind of very juvenile, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but juvenile uh, Spider-Man role being this high school. I think it's something that, that plays in and, and that element of his voice uh, acting even in something like a live action Spider-Man, I think really does play into this because it's, you know, he's playing similar characters in terms of stages in life and, and that continuity I'm sure helps. As for Chris Pratt, I think that, you know, maybe someone who is, a, it's not necessarily a, a, you know, straight down the pike kind of casting here for him, I don't think. And obviously he's much older and he's playing a slightly different role in the form of Barley, but I think that it ends up working uh, well, and I think the elements that I find sometimes a little bit annoying about Chris Pratt characters, and I think it's intentional, it's not unintentional, the fact that he's kind of played up for this guy who's, you know, a bit of a uh, a space cadet sometimes. I mean, Emmett from, you know, the Lego uh, movies is, is, you know, case in point in that, that he's able to play that kind of role. And I think the, that this Barley character is an evolution of that. It's obviously, you know, Barley is a smart guy in, in his own particular way and maybe not in a, in a sense a traditional sense that you know someone like an Ian might respect at least at the outset of the movie but I think part of that is is played really well as much as I have hesitations about this character early on I think yeah to some extent maybe that is intentional and I think that Chris Pratt's uh, what, what Chris Pratt brings to this voice role in particular is able to accentuate those points and and make the role uh, really really effective even if again like I said I was a little bit hesitant about the character uh, at the outset yeah, no, I think that's a good comparison you make between Chris Pratt, uh, Chris Pratt's character here, and then Emmett in the Lego Movie. I also thought about that comparison, and I think that it, it really works here. And yeah, maybe he's typecast a little bit, right? Like this is the same role. It's it's the happy-go-lucky guy who kind of just goes through life at his own pace, not really realizing that other people, you know, don't th think very little of him. 
um, perhaps. But he plays it really well here, and I, I think he has a good foil in um, in Ian, who is you know much much the wiser about how maybe people view his brother, but still is you know this youthful character. He's coming of age, right? He's tur- just turning sixteen in the movie. There's still a lot of um, things that he has to experience, like he, he doesn't know how to drive. Uh, it is becomes a key plot point in the movie. Um, and, and he has this list of stuff that, you know, he, he wants to do with his dad. He has this list of experiences that he wants to have, you know, that are kind of like essential to growing up in a way. Um, and so I think that both of these actors are really well chosen for their role because they do have that youthful energy in their voice, right? Like that's, that's what I think makes Tom Holland an effective uh, Peter Parker, why, why people have been drawn to him as Peter Parker, because, you know, I, I, he's a little bit, he's older than a high school kid would be, but he's, he's a believable high school kid. There's, there's a youthfulness about him um, in those Spider-Man movies. And, and I think that that translates well to his role here. And yeah, the, the same for Chris Pratt. I think um, he's, he's mastered this role um, t- to a T and, uh, you know, I, I, as much as I love the Lego movies, it's great to see him playing that, that same type of role here. And ha- again, surrounded by, uh, I think another actor and, and you know, another, uh, as supporting voice cast, which is, which is pretty strong, you know, formerly, uh, I mean, I mentioned Julia Louis, Louis Dreyfus, um, Octavia Spencer also plays a, a pretty major role here. Um, a few other names may be recognizable a little bit further down the cast, but, uh, overall, I think it's a well-chosen voice cast, something that, uh, Pixar is it, always a strength in Pixar movies. Yeah, no, I, I agree. They, they hardly ever show up with a cast that's not uh, that's not something to be respected at the very least. And just one final note before we do move on from this is that you know, one of the parts that I think you, you explained it out further here just to build on it, one of the parts that I think is such a good evolution of that Emmett character is the fact that, yeah, in the Lego movie, he's like very unaware of, of basically what other people think about him. And I think in this film, this role relies pretty heavily on understanding that this is someone who is very aware of what other people think of him. And you know, yes, he goes through life not particularly caring what people think of them, or at least pretending to not care what people think of him. But he's a character that you know, inescapably is aware that people don't necessarily view this this you know this individual as of Barley as someone who is a you know a, a good kid or you know someone who's on the straight and narrow, so to speak. He he is this sort of whether outcast is the right word or you know uh, subversive sort of character who's prone to, I don't know, protecting historical monuments in the city from destruction based on uh, no other reason than the fact that, I don't know, maybe they have a presence in this uh, historically uh, or lore-driven game, like you said, a, a kind of a D&D clone-like uh, game that he plays. And and so for that reason, he he is an outcast in, in, in some ways, and uh, even in his own family. To an extent, I do agree with you. I think I have uh, slight reservations about that. Uh, but let's save that for when we get into spoilers. Honestly, I think we can go ahead and get into spoilers at this point. This is kind of where I wanted to talk about the story and the overall arching themes of the movie. Um, so if you um, if you haven't seen the movie yet, if you don't want to be spoiled, you know, skip ahead, check the time codes, do all of that. We will get into spoilers now. But I'll just say that I think I am I do have a few reservations about that just because of the moment where. Um, where Ian and Barley have to disguise themselves basically as um, uh, Officer Bronco, who is their mom's boyfriend. And um, 
the uh, this cop that pulls them over is reflecting on the fact that Barley is kind of a screw up and um, Ian kind of agrees with her. And when he tries to disagree with her, right, their disguise starts going away because he's lying. Um, and Barley, you know, is really hurt by that. The fact that um, his brother, um, you know, thought th thinks of him in that way and, and think. And, and yes, I, this is where I, I mean, I do kind of agree with you in a way, because I think it's that his brother thinks of him in the way that other people think of him, which I think there is some awareness there. Um, but I think there's still enough like lack of awareness there to make this um, kind of a, a heartbreaking moment in a way, right? Because maybe Ian is kind of the one person who he felt like he could rely on and who would stand up for him in the way that he seems to stand up for Ian all the time. Um and, you know, this is a moment where he realizes that, no, Ian kind of thinks of him in the same way as everyone else does, which probably isn't something that he was aware of prior to this moment. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that what we're saying is is pretty much in alignment. I think that Barley is, is aware yeah. of what society thinks about him. And I think, I mean, this is a pure, I mean, there's no way to actually tell this from the movie, but, you know, my take would be like, he has, you know, refused to accept or believe or really consider the fact that his brother and i'm sure this would also extend to his mom might feel the same way about him but he knows that the rest of society feels that way and so you know in those moments where you know like you you laid out here the scene that they are disguising themselves as as a um, colt bronco he discovers that you know maybe his worst fear that his family feels the same way about him as he knows that society does it almost hurts worse in those moments than you know the, those fears come true when you are aware that you know that is kind of the common perception. So I, I don't know if I, I disagree with what you're saying there, and if if anything, I think that I think we're on the same page. Yeah, no, I I think I think so. I, I definitely agree with uh, with you there. Uh, other themes and stuff to talk about with the plot, Scott. Obviously, this this plot is is structured like a road trip type movie. You know, it's a it's a quest. They keep talking about there are several sort of. Uh, exotic locations that they have to go to. Again, I mentioned it being a little bit MacGuffin-y because it's like, you have to go find this person who will take you to this thing. You know, Ultimately, finding this gem is kind of what they're trying to do, um, a la Birds of Prey, maybe a little bit. Uh, and uh, you know, using, using the magical powers within this uh, gem to uh, then resurrect the rest of their father. Mm -hmm. um, and we also have the the fact that Ian has magical powers, right? And he's kind of discovering his magical powers and discovering how to do these different spells. Um, Scott, what did you think about maybe the the fantasy elements of the story? Did did they work for you for the most part, or did you kind of think they were just put on the back burner a little bit for the uh, you know overall family themes and uh, more relatable elements of the movie? Yeah, I think that. Uh like I think many aspects of the movie that it really strikes the right balance. I mean, it's something like the lore of this film, the fantasy elements, how you want to talk about it. I think they're there if you want to engage with them. And I think they're treated in a, in a way that respects them and, and takes them seriously enough to where they're not just completely being cast aside. But it's also like, if that's not something that you care about and you care about engaging with in a particular way in the movie, I don't think that they're so prevalent and so in your face that you have to engage with them in that way, right? So like for me as someone who, you know, actually quite likes these kind of sort of fantasy uh, elements that, you know, a la Harry Potter, a la Lord of the Rings, right? Obviously, I think that here is something closer to Harry Potter, maybe a little bit of a mix of the two, but definitely closer to Harry Potter than something like Lord of the Rings. And that really works for me. I mean, I don't know. This doesn't come up that often on the podcast, I guess, but like Harry Potter, you know, I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. I, you know, 
it's only by the way of the fact that podcasts have become so popular and listening to podcasts that I've stopped listening to the Harry Potter audiobooks on some sort of like yearly cycle. Uh, so I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. So that the elements of like that really work for me. And this just isn't the kind of movie that I think would be able to be successful diving super deep in like into like the lore of those particular elements. But it's a type of film and an animated film and a, and a family film that is able to tease you with that lore and show you that it's there in all the right ways to make you interested in the lore, but also not overwhelming it with you either. So like I said, striking that balance. And so for me, I think that, you know, there's this handful of spells that Tom Holland's character learns over over the course of the film. Like, of course, we know there must be more spells, right? But those are the spells that matter for the film. And so there they're there. And, you know, you could ask the question like, oh, I'm curious how else magic was used in this world, you know, say 200, 300 years ago, whatever it might be, when before all these, you know, inventions of electricity and things like that made magic, you know, less relevant for society. And it can allow you to, you know, let your mind wander on those things and, and be interested in it. And that's not, and I don't think that's a negative. I don't think that's distracting from the film overall because it still uses those fantasy elements in the right way. They're not just filler. They're not just plot devices. Uh, it really feels an, an integral part of this world that these, you know, these characters are having this quest in. And so for that reason, again, I just like so many other parts of this film, I think it strikes the right balance. Yeah, no, I agree. I also think there are some really interesting creatures and like, uh, you know, adversaries, so to speak, that uh, the movie devises for Ian and Barley. There's like this green gelatinous cube at one point that is chasing them down that dissolves everything that it touches, which I thought was cool. And then, of course, the climax of the movie, there's like this dragon that is created out of like the wreckage of their high school um, that is really it's creative. Uh, You know, even if I, I don't necessarily respond to those um, to those fantastical elements always, or is that's not something that always draws me to a movie. I can, I can certainly admire the creativity of the animation and, you know, the writers and everything who came up with the design for this particular character. Um, I, I definitely appreciated that, but I agree with your overall point. I think that um, the strongest moments are where it finds a way to balance the the fantasy elements with also the, the emotional core of the movie in particular. I really like this one scene where, uh, Ian has to create an invisible bridge to cross uh, this uh, bottomless pit. Uh, and it, it, it kind of, uh, again, it draws in that relationship element by uh, because he has to have the belief, right, that the next step he takes, there's going to be the bridge there. And so this whole trust element comes into it. And Barley's encouraging of him plays a huge role in the scene and in him eventually being, being able to cross the crevasse with his bridge. And then ultimately, um, all of that sort of comes back around at the end when uh, he realizes that um, that encouragement that he received from Barley is the kind of thing that he felt like he was missing in his life because he didn't have his father, but ultimately realizes that, oh, he actually had all of these things all along from his older brother who sort of acted as this sort of de facto father figure to him. So I thought that that was a really nice moment of linking up sort of uh, the, again, the, the more fantastical elements with something that we can actually relate to and the you know sibling dynamics and family dynamics at the core of the story yeah again i the scene that you're describing right there i think is kind of the the first moment in the film where you feel like yes there's still some frustration there that ian is dealing with as a character but that moment where he i think the first time he appreciates that 
while my brother really does have my back. Maybe, you know, one of those earlier scenes where he's at the school being supportive, picking him up, trying to, to be there for him as a brother in a way that Ian doesn't really appreciate. You know, this is a kind of the first sign of, you know, Barley is there for him in, in a way that he does really appreciate. And yeah, he's, of course, you know, furious probably for in, in the moment that he didn't tell him that the rope wasn't there. But you know, what's the conclusion of him telling him the rope isn't there? Probably that he falls. And so I think that, you know, once he escaped that moment from the, like, that feels like the first moment where their connection begins uh, to start trending towards what you get in the finale of the film. Yeah, I agree. And, and talking about the finale, I think we should also mention the ending. Scott, you've talked about how you thought it was a really strong part of the film. Uh, I agree. I think I, I, I do ultimately like where the movie ends up. There was sort of one slight moment where I was a little bit concerned about where it was going just because there's, you know, this moment where, uh, where Ian realizes again, again, he's had sort of a falling out with his brother because he, he feels that, uh, Barley has led them astray on their quest and that they're not going to be able to find the gem now, uh, and that they won't be able to resurrect their father in time. Uh, and then, but then he has this moment, this epiphany, right. As he's looking at his list of things and realizing that, the things that he wanted to do with his father and realized that he has done them, but he's done them all with Barley and he's checking off all of these things uh, on the list. And I felt like, Oh, that's a nice moment. Like, right. Like he's come to the realization he needs to, we can wrap the movie up now. Uh, but then of course, Barley goes and actually does find the stone, right? Like I, I kind of, at, at that moment I was like, oh, I don't know if I like this direction because I liked the idea that it, ultimately the quest doesn't matter, right? It's about, the relationship between these two guys and whether Barley leads them astray or not. Maybe he is a screw up. Maybe he did screw up their quest in a way, but that doesn't really matter, right? Because he has been this important person to, um, to Ian and this quest has strengthened their relationship, even if it hasn't ultimately led to them getting exactly what they wanted, which is to resurrect their father. So I was a little trepidatious at first about the fact that he does actually find the stone. Uh, but then I do really like the way that the movie ends up with, uh, particularly the moment where Ian, uh, where, where they're kind of deciding which one of them is going to fight off the dragon and which one of them is actually going to be able to speak to their father. And Ian decides that he's going to let Barley do it because Barley, of course, never got to say, there's this whole whole story about how he never got to say goodbye to his father before his father died. And so he wants to give Barley that moment uh, because he never got to have that with the father. And Ian obviously did get to have this relationship with barley not necessarily with the father but uh, he doesn't he he realizes in the end that maybe he didn't really need the father all along because he did have barley so i like that idea i, I thought that that stuck the landing for me ultimately and then the nice really nice moment of of ian looking through sort of the wreckage and just seeing the the moment the the final moment between barley and their father is a is it's a really moving scene again it, it's definitely it definitely tugs at your heartstrings as pixar's want to do um scott any other thoughts on the ending yeah i mean honestly just echo everything that you said i don't really want to repeat it but um you know the first time that i was holding off tears was in that scene where he's like on the cliffside with his you know the father's legs and he's checking off items uh, on the list real has is that realization moment and the second time is when he's peeking through the crack and you see uh, Barley you know get to have the conversation ever so briefly and then the hug and yeah and, and again like the climax or in the choice that goes into which brother actually gets to spend the time with the father I mean I think again that sticks the landing that was the the ending that I didn't know would be the perfect ending for that film it feels right 
and it felt right at the end and it still feels right you know several days later for me having after having seen the movie yeah right because the whole thing so much of the movie is about ian's uh quest to find the father and how badly he wants to be the one you know to get to know his father and do all these things with his father um you know that he never got to do and so i really like that in the end he doesn't get that but realizes he got something just as important and it, it pivots away from where you expect it to go so i think that's that's a really nice moment and a movie that's really full of, of really nice moments. Uh, Scott, the last thing I want to talk about before we wrap up is just where this movie stands in, in the Pixar lexicon. Obviously, there are, have been a lot of Pixar films. They've been around, you know, putting out movies since the first Toy Story in 1995. Um, I'm not going to ask you to give your full ranking or anything like that. But if you had to organize this into like, is this like the upper tier, middle tier? I, I've seen some people saying that this is like mid to low tier Pixar. I, I don't agree with that at all. I haven't seen every movie, but I definitely don't agree with that. But where generally, where do you think you would place this movie among uh, all of Pixar's you know, great films? Yeah, I, I reserve judgment uh, until probably the time that we review Soul on the podcast in June, because I think I'm hoping by then I'll have rewatched all the Pixar movies, and then I can I can give a quick update on this. But for me, I, I think this is going to be mid to you know mid mid slash upper tiers like that. I'd say that if there's five tiers of Pixar movies, which is maybe too many, I think this would probably be in you know tier two, uh, maybe up you know upper parts of tier three. For me, I think this is really really good. I'm right now i think as i'm doing my rewatch you know i have this up there around um you know kind of the the lesser of the toy story movies in that area and again i'll give an update when we review soul in, in three months time i think is what it is uh, on where everything sits and, and how everything shakes out but for me you know that tier one up there is is going to be your inside out you know your best toy story um, you know, I like the first Incredibles quite a bit. I think that, you know, I haven't rewatched Finding Nemo yet. That's the next one. But I think Finding Nemo is up there in that tier one, tier two territory as well. And I think Onward is, is just right below that top, top tier. Yeah, no, like I kind of alluded to up front, I think this is, um, you know, upper, cl very close to the upper tier. It's very possibly my favorite since Ratatouille all the way back in 2007. Uh, I think like Ratatouille and Toy Story 2 and Toy Story 1 are, are and, and, you know, maybe Monsters, Inc. as well are like the, the top tier for me. But I think this movie is right there with those last two Toy Story sequels and with Inside Out, like you mentioned. I think those to me are the, you know, the really, really strong Pixar films um, that that I, you know, treasure. And I, I have no doubt that uh, I'm going to be. Uh, watching this one, you know, more in the years to come because uh, it did leave a lasting impact with me. And yeah, you know, I was really looking forward to Soul, and I, I still certainly am. But I think they got a high bar to beat here uh, if they're going to be the better, if it's going to be the better Pixar uh, movie of of the two. But hey, look, I'm rooting for it to do so because that means we'll have gotten two really, really good uh, Pixar films this year. Yeah, we could look back and collectively say that, you know, this was, you know, maybe one of Pixar's best years. If you think about other other years where two movies have come out, I, I just think like this because with with two amazing Pixar movies, I think this really, like you said, you know, could be the best uh, the best year that Pixar has had collectively. And especially, you know, I have such high hopes because Pete Docter is doing Soul, same person who directed Inside Out, uh, same person who I believe did Monsters, Inc. as well. So I'm... I'm <laughs> Really looking forward to Soul this year. I have my expectations are that it will outperform this movie just because Inside Out is, uh, you know, I treasure it so much and 
and and and all that. But we'll we'll see. I, I'm super optimistic. If, if there was one that I thought was going to disappoint me this year, it was going to be this one. But it didn't. It turns out it, it didn't do that. And uh, you talk about re rewatching this in the coming years. I totally agree. I think that this movie has, like so many Pixar movies, immense rewatchability. It's it's super fun. That adventure in the middle. It feels like a. a Yes, other Pixar movies have had adventure elements, certainly, but just something about this quest, right, just feels different than uh, any other type of adventure that we've gotten from Pixar film in the past, whether that's, you know, Up or Incredibles or however you want to think about uh, other adventure movies in the Pixar lexicon. This is this just adds something to it. There, it, It's additive in a way that, you know, even Toy Story 4 can't even necessarily say that it was additive just because it, it does rehash, even though it explores some new themes, it does rehash many. This, this one felt... Like it had a lot, a lot of new things to add to the overall filmography of Pixar. Yeah, and the last thing I'll say is just that I hope this one isn't forgotten around awards time, right? Like because um, this movie isn't doing super great at the box office. Pixar really didn't market it very well because it wasn't tracking well, and I think that they are really throwing all of their chips in on Soul, probably doing well with the summer release and everything. Um, and so I hope that you know. Maybe both of these can crack into the best animated feature. I'm not sure if Pixar has done that before. Uh, but like I said, just because Pixar is throwing a lot more of its weight behind Soul, I hope that Onward doesn't get forgotten uh, around awards season next year when we're uh, narrowing down those best animated feature nominees. Because uh, unless, you know, it turns out to be a, an incredibly great year for animation, I think this movie is definitely going to belong in the five. Yeah, I mean, I, I can only think, I can only agree with that. I as in terms of it doing poorly at the box office, I don't think that that is true. It was supposed to do 45 million. It did 40 million. I think that's low for Pixar generally, but that's not really that surprising with this type of property. Like you said, maybe marketed in a way that was a little bit less effective. I don't know, but also just with coronavirus and all the concerns, we'll talk about that in the news section in a second, but it was always, I think, going to be a lower turnaround. I think if anything, they're probably pretty happy with 40 million. I mean, I mean, obviously they want their movies to always be doing more. It was never going to do Incredibles 2 numbers or Toy Story 4 numbers, anything like that. I think 40 million on, yeah, I mean, they're, I mean, their movies are expensive to make, but you know, 40 million on a hundred million dollar budget opening, of course they'd want to do better, but I don't know how much higher their expectations really could have been for a new IP. I mean, we've talked again, not to be too repetitive here, but like new IPs are never going to usually perform as well as, um, as returning franchises, even, you know, much, much to our chagrin, maybe uh, that we like seeing original ideas and original content rather than another sequel. But I don't know. I, I, I would take pause in saying that it's, you know, not doing well at the box office. I think that has a underlying hints of, you know, what your expectations should be and kind of a la birds of prey uh, conversation we had earlier this year as well. Yes, but I, I do think that, yeah, yes, its expectations were a bit lower, but I think just, again, based on Pixar's standard and, and where their movies generally come, you know, come out around in terms of box office numbers, and yes, I understand there are some extenuating circumstances here, I do think they're going to be disappointed with this. I mean, this is coming out even lower than The Good Dinosaur, right, which which I think people, at least as far but as... I had a, the, good, the Good Dinosaur came out at Thanksgiving, and I don't like, there's not similar, you know, release periods, I don't think. At the same time, uh, again, this being a Pixar film, I think they are going to be a little bit disappointed regardless of, of the marketing. And I mean, the thing about The Good Dinosaur is that people said the movie was terrible, right? Like people uh, consider that probably the worst Pixar movie. And yet people are saying this movie is really good and it is really good and it's still not doing well. Again, there are some other some other factors there, but 
I don't think it's quite the same situation as Birds of Prey in terms of um, talking about how how it's performing. Um, but yeah, regardless, I, I'm also going to have to disagree with you. I think the Good Dinosaur has better ratings than than Onward does, just like flat out. Uh, the Good Dinosaur has like a 66 on Metacritic. Onward is 61. Um, like I, I I just don't know if the mar- if you have that right around what like the uh, the consensus message okay, is. Okay, well, well, go look at pick people's Pixar ratings and then get back to me on that. But um, okay, favorite scene or moment from Onward? Yeah, I mean the finale is the is the best scene uh, for me, and it, it maybe is in disparate parts here, but I think that you know that moment when he, I mean, it's hard to pick which one exactly, right? But you know that moment where he has to decide or doesn't have to decide, sorry, that he you know, is going through the checklist and he's running through things and has this realization, kind of like I did in the moment, because I didn't see that was the direction the movie was going to go. And you kind of have this realization together with Ian that, oh, like I have, um, you know, I've had all these things with, you know, with my brother. I don't necessarily need to, I, I basically had a father in the form of my brother. And so in that way, I, you know, I, I should be really grateful and thankful and has a new appreciation for his brother. I think that moment was really special. And not just for the actual plot point, but like I said, because you're getting to have that realization, I feel like, with Ian. And I think whenever you can have that realization with a character in the film that you've been on a journey with, it really enhances the moment. And so, uh, again, Onward nails it there. Yeah, and another scene that we haven't talked about that I'll give my shout-out to, because we have talked about a lot of my favorite scenes, um, is the scene where Barley uh, basically sacrifices his van while they're in the middle of a, a police chase, um, to sort of rescue the both of them and stop them from being caught caught up to by the police. Um, obviously, the van is something that's very important uh, to Barley throughout the movie. It's almost its own character in the movie, uh, and so that's that's kind of the moment where if you're if you're not full, even fully on board with that with the Barley character, I think you you finally come around because you see what he's willing to sacrifice for his brother, right? For so that his brother mainly can complete this quest and that they can resurrect their father. Uh, and so I thought that, that was a really, really nice scene. Um, yeah. Okay. Scott, what's your score for Onward? 8.1. It's a great film. Yeah. I'm a little bit higher. I'm at 9.1. Like I said, I think this is a really, really excellent Pixar entry. I would be surprised if there's a better animated movie this year, but I look forward to to soul trying and, and whatever else we have on the radar for animated movies. I will say that the trailer's, uh, before this movie in terms of what's coming out and animated <laughs> not really getting me excited except for for much except for soul but who knows maybe maybe something will come out of the woodwork what else was before it? i didn't i didn't actually show up early for the commercials for this one there's there's a trolls movie there's another despicable oh. me there's the scooby-doo thing which looks just oh, atrocious um yeah so yeah I, i'm not sure what kind of a year it's going to be for animation but hey we started off on a high note with this one yeah, I mean those those also aren't the movies that are that are getting nominated at the end of the year anyway. So like I'm like I, I hear you, dude. I like if I saw those trailers for the show, I wouldn't be too optimistic either. But I think we got at least four really great animated films last year that got nominated for Academy Awards, and not all of them came out in theaters, obviously, so you wouldn't necessarily see trailers for them before the theaters. But I would just say don't get your hopes too far down yet, because there's probably still hope for twenty twenty. Yeah, absolutely. Um okay, Scott, that should do it for our review of Onward. Uh, We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about a couple of the biggest news stories of the week, including the coronavirus, and James Bond maybe has the coronavirus now. I don't know. Uh, We'll talk about it after the break. Uh, We'll be right back.
Hello, and welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Uh, okay, Scott, we are going to streamline the news format a little bit uh, for this week and from here on out, just because we have the newsletter, right? We, we cover a lot of the big news stories in that newsletter. And if you're not subscribed, you really should be subscribed. Uh, newsletters have been turning out great. We've got exclusive articles every week. Um, I don't know if the link is in the show notes, but we'll get it in there this time uh, if you if you haven't subscribed yet. Yeah, no, I'll make sure it's in there. Sure. Yeah. So that will be our primary place for covering the big news stories. But of course, we do want to give a little bit of airtime to maybe one story each that that has been on uh, each one of our minds over, I guess, the past couple of weeks now since we've since we've last done the news. Um, and I want to start by talking about uh, a story that has been catching my attention and I'm sure a lot of moviegoers attention is uh, what's going on with the coronavirus at the uh, international box office in particular and how that has affected one film already, that being uh, the James Bond, uh, the, the latest James Bond film, No Time to Die. Of course, we talked a lot about this movie, Scott, um, and it was supposed to be released in mid-April. And, and after you know reviewing what's going on with the coronavirus and the, the possible impact that that would have, again, particularly on international box office numbers, uh, MGM and Universal and um, the, the Broccoli's have decided that they're going to move this movie to November. They're going to move the release date to November for no time to die uh, in, in hopes that they can, you know, make more money that the coronavirus uh, business will have, you know, come and gone by then. And that uh, it's not going to affect the international box office numbers. I, I think it's a, it's a reasonable fear, certainly right now, uh, particularly what's going on in Europe. I think where there is a big audience for James Bond, um, you know, that's, that's where the coronavirus is hitting really heavily right now. And I think, uh, you know, here in America, yes, there there definitely have been a fair share of alarmists, um, but I think mostly people are going about their their daily lives, and I'm not sure how much the domestic box office here in the U.S. is going to be affected by the coronavirus. Uh, but I think it is fair to look at the international um, and and say that hey, this probably isn't going to do the type of numbers uh, that we want in mid-April, just because people aren't going out. They're, they they definitely don't want to risk going into a a crowded movie theater with a lot of other people and contracting this virus. Um, so the, the movie has been pushed back. Uh, I'm not too sorry about it. You know, I, I mean, I, we're going to see the movie obviously, but it wasn't like hotly anticipated for me to the point where I can be like, Oh gosh, like I, I can't wait another seven months for this or whatever. No, I mean, I'm not looking forward to sitting through two hours and 40 minutes of this. I think I've been very open about that. Uh, and, and so, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm actually glad that, that they've prolonged it. And maybe in the interim, they will think about uh, cutting the movie down. Doubtful, but um, yeah, I, I hope to, I hope to spite you. I hope to spite you that they make it longer in the interim. <laughs> yeah. They're like, why don't we just film, you know, another hour of footage? Um, what's another motorcycle chase? Right. But Scott, I think the, the other point here is just, is this going to affect, uh, you know, other films? And, and one movie that you brought up to me earlier in the week was black widow, right? Which, uh, is a movie we just got the final trailer for it today um, it's slated for a, a release in the first weekend in may um, you know this is the first first marvel movie first mcu movie in oh, like 10 months by the time that this movie yeah. is released um, and i'm not sure if they've ever had a gap uh, that long well back at the beginning days they did in the early days true yeah before yeah. they were putting out like two a year but um but yeah, uh, so, so I think for, for me personally, like, I don't know, I don't, I, I feel like this movie isn't going to get moved right now unless things, you know, are exacerbated greatly in the next month or so um, with the coronavirus, just because I think 
people are going to go see this movie, right? Like I think it, it because it is, it, it, it is even more highly anticipated than I think the James Bond movie uh, because, you know, Marvel routinely does a billion dollars on their movies. Again, it's been 10 months since the bombshells that we got at the end of Spider-Man Far From Home. I think people uh, are, are going to risk it, uh, perhaps. I mean, it, it may not do the billion that Marvel, again, is used to doing, um, but I don't, I don't know. I, I think that their projections are probably going to be a little bit friendlier than uh, what MGM and, and co were seeing with uh, no time to die. Yeah. Not, not a hundred percent sure about that. I think bond movies do regularly make a bill or the Craig bond movies do regularly make in the billion dollar range. I know skyfall made 1.1 billion. Uh, I believe Spectre made around 900 million, which I mean, that's probably about what some of the, you know, up, upper middle tier Marvel movies in terms of box office are making obviously doesn't compare to, you know, your, the last two Avengers movies, which both made, you know, north of i mean i think even though i can't mean i think infinity war made close to two billion and then obviously Endgame broke the record so not like that but i think you know better than some of the you know lesser known marvel movies the question is where will black widow fall in that obviously captain marvel last year made a billion uh the first female-led uh mcu movie making a billion dollars i think they're certainly going to be hoping that black widow can reproduce uh that same magic that the captain marvel had last year and I mean, I think it's a fair question about whether, it, given the the current environment, it's not that you're, the movie's going to bomb at the box office. I mean, I, I can't see a scenario uh, that it's going to bomb. But I think that some more hesitant viewers or uh, casual viewers, if there is such a thing in the MCU, uh, might you know sit, you know wait and sit on this if coronavirus is still something that is top of mind for you know for different populations, and it, it certainly will be for uh, for people in Europe. I think you're right to point out the the kind of even maybe more European focused audience for Bond. I mean, today Italy shut down uh, pretty much the entire country. It, it felt like uh, they put all sporting events, uh, they canceled all sporting events, and I think locked down the whole country today. Pretty crazy stuff. Um, and it's probably only a matter of time that it spreads through the EU if it hasn't already begun to spread like wildfire, um, just because of the the nature of diseases and stuff like that. But all that being said, I think Black Widow will still be successful. I will be interested to see if it does hold. And I think, and I do think that it will at this point. I think it will hold. I could be wrong, but I think it will. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if it does break the billion dollar uh, mark. Uh, my, I would lean toward maybe it wouldn't, uh, mainly because I think Captain Marvel, for lots of different reasons, I think Captain Marvel benefited from being uh, in between the two Avengers movies. I think it benefited a great deal uh, from that. And I also think that. Uh, there is already a little bit of resolution with this Black Widow character, uh, given the events of Avengers Endgame. And I think that, you know, compelling people to go out and see, like, this just isn't a must-see movie, right? Captain Marvel was the last movie before Endgame. It, it was kind of a must-see movie, uh, in, in my mind. Uh, I'm not sure Black Widow is. I'm certainly very excited about it. I, I'm very much looking forward to getting out there and seeing it. I just wonder if the current context will hold it back a little bit. Will it hold it back enough to justify the marketing costs that you know Disney and Marvel would incur for delaying the film? I mean, Bond's probably going to lose thirty to forty-five million dollars in marketing costs by delaying the movie. Probably not. I don't think. I don't know if it'll necessarily lose that much money, but I think it will hurt it. Um, and I mean, just this earlier this week or last week, sorry, South by Southwest completely canceled. Um, so it is affecting the movie and entertainment space even beyond movie releases. And whole festivals getting canceled. We'll see if can. Uh, goes the same way, the fact that it's in France and Europe right now, which is even harder hit than Austin, Texas is. So we'll see. 
Yeah, no, I think those are those are good points. I'm not sure it gets to a billion either. I think maybe to to play the other side of what you're saying, I I wonder if maybe the fact that Black Widow is an established character, obviously we we do we did have some resolution for her, like you said, in in Endgame, she died. But maybe that's for that reason people will turn up to see um, you know, their their last chance probably to see Scarlett Johansson as as Black Widow, um, I, I do wonder if that plays a factor at all. Captain Marvel, I think, was well positioned. It was also an original character, which we hadn't seen before. So um, I think that's sort of the other side of that. And then, of course, you always have those post credit scenes, right? Which, even if the rest of the movie is going to be a flashback, isn't necessarily going to play directly into, you know, the the events of Endgame and, and Spider-Man Far From Home. I think those post credit scenes very well could have implications for what's going forward. And in particular, I think... A lot of people speculating about maybe Florence Pugh's character becoming the next Black Widow. Um, yeah. I don't know, but but those are questions which I think, and those are some factors which I think could drive people to to the theaters. And maybe ultimately, if it does get to a billion, I won't be surprised for those reasons. Yeah, no, I think that this is a movie where the box office might not be too front loaded for all these reasons that we're describing. I think it's a movie that could really you could see some some low drop-offs. You talk about you know second-week drops is something that we don't talk about too often on the podcast, but obviously uh, matters a lot to these to the legs, so to speak, uh, of a movie. And I think this is a film that, given the context, if people are waiting back due to concerns about the coronavirus, if this movie does get you know good reviews, both critically and in terms of uh, commercially with audiences, that is something that you could see. I could I could imagine scenarios where you know the second weekend is is stronger than may be expected. Uh, for that very reason. So again, if it breaks a billion, I'm not going to be surprised. I think Black Widow is a great character. Uh, she certainly deserves a billion dollars in my book. And so if it does, I'll be all the happier. I do want to say, bring up one of the things you said Captain Marvel was an original character. I'm not sure what you meant by that. I meant we hadn't really seen her in another film before. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but you get it with like Ant-Man and Doctor Strange. Yeah, that was that wasn't that wasn't the right choice of words. I mean, obviously, she's been a character for a long time. But I mean, compared to Black Widow, comparatively, obviously, we've been right. watching Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow in movies for 10 years. Yeah. So, since Iron Man uh, 2. Yeah. That, that was all I meant by that. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I, yeah. I think you're I think you're right on. And I, I, I all the last thing I'll say, I guess, is. But anyway, it, moving away from that, Scott, I know that one thing that caught your eye this week was a. a buzzy new video game adaptation that is coming over at HBO. Do you want to tell us more about that? Absolutely, Scott. I saw this news. I think it was last Wednesday. Not remember. It could have been Wednesday or Thursday. I don't really remember. Everything's a blur these days. But I woke up, you know, started my day, go to work, couple hours of my day at work. I'm checking notifications on my phone. And I see that there is an adaptation of The Last of Us, which is a PlayStation uh, first party game developed by a, a game studio called Naughty Dog which is also known for a bunch of other games, including Uncharted, which is a movie that may or may not be made. Uh, who, who, who even knows what's happening with that film? Um, and also a couple other games further back, uh, the Jack and Daxter series. And they created a video game in 2013 called The Last of Us, which is about this uh, story about these two, uh, this kind of older man and a, and a younger girl, uh, where the older man is tasked with uh, essentially currying this girl across the country because uh, she may be the last hope uh, for human survival from this, what is essentially a zombie apocalypse. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. It, it's actually a disease that spread what, rapidly through the population that it does. It, again, zombie is like the closest thing that the way you could describe it. It isn't technically a zombie, uh, but this disease that kind of turns you into this monster, basically. And it was critically acclaimed. I think it won a ton of awards. 
uh, one of my favorite video games of all time. I'll raise my hand and say it. And I think the idea of an adaptation, whether it be, I mean, primarily movie adaptation has been kicked around for a while at Sony. But last week, uh, it came out that this is actually being adapted by HBO and Sony. Obviously, Sony Pictures Television being an independent studio and licensing their products out like this. Uh, a co-development with HBO uh, for a miniseries and being executive produced and written by Neil Druckmann, who is the creative director on the game over at Naughty Dog at PlayStation, and Craig Mazin, who is the creator and writer uh, for Chernobyl, which of course won tons of Emmys, uh, as well as Golden Globes, tons of awards uh, this past year, which is of course the kind of the narrative uh, historical fiction retelling of the Chernobyl disaster uh, in Ukraine. And Scott, honestly, I can't even imagine a better setup for this film. I can't, I can't imagine better creators. You know, Craig Mazin maybe historically done some more questionable stuff with the hangovers, but in the last few years, obviously, has taken a, a turn in his career, uh, pivoting towards something like Chernobyl. There's lots of rumors around what his next uh, historical fiction project will be. Uh, but before we get that, we are going to get his adaptation of The Last of Us with Neil Druckmann, the fact that you're getting the creator of the video game in on this as well, in the miniseries format, which I think is perfect for this type of story. Again, I don't want to spoil anything in the story because it's an incredibly emotional and impactful story uh, that I absolutely love. One of the best endings uh, to a video game of all time, uh, in my opinion, and, and I expect all that to be captured in this series because it is supposed to be a narrative retelling uh, adaptation of that first game. And Scott, again, I just can't imagine... Uh, a better you know, co-writing team, co-executive producing team for this film, given what Craig Mazin was able to do last year and the environment and tone that he was able to set up for his Chernobyl adaptation, as well as Neil Druckmann, who you know lives and breathes this stuff. The fact that he was the creative director on The Last of Us, he's the creative director on the sequel to that game, The Last of Us Part Two, which is coming out later this year. Uh, it's the perfect combination. Yeah, you know, no, Scott, this is a game that um, I've been familiar with for many years. I never, never played it because I've never really had like a PlayStation system really to myself or anything like that. Uh, but it's the type of game that I know that I would really get behind. It's, you know, that story driven, choice driven type adventure type game that I really enjoy. I think that uh, if I ever got to play it, I would probably uh, feel the same way that you do about it. Um, but yeah, I'm glad that I'll, I'll get to experience it in a different way with this this TV series. And yeah, one thing you did mention there, which I think is is good, is that um, they are adapting it straight from uh, the the video game, right? Which is which is a question that always comes up with video game adaptations. Um, do, do you adapt the video game story or not? And I think in the movie context, a lot of directors, um, you know, decide not to do that and try, decide to have an original story. Um, often to the detriment of those films um, because video games usually have, you know, if, if it's being adapted for the big screen, it's usually has a really good story. There are a lot of really, really deep and rich video game stories out there. Uh, and I think that the TV route is, is the right way to go. Right. Because I think maybe, maybe the reason that some directors and, and movie writers don't adapt the games is just because they're too ambitious, right? You're talking about something that a lot of times is played out over, you know, 10 to 20 to 30 hours in a video game setting that maybe doesn't translate as well to a two to three hour movie. Um, and, and that's why they go in their own direction, again, usually to the detriment of the film. So I think something like this, which obviously is known for its story, right, is like it's known for having this really strong, complex um, story it is perfect for a TV series where you can really flesh that story out 
Um, and, and I suspect that that's what they're going to do. Again, like you mentioned, the person, uh, for the developer of the game being uh, involved with the project, I think is is great um, and, and is very encouraging for me. Maybe this will be that, that first great video game adaptation. Um, we will see. But Scott, any uh, any thoughts on casting? Maybe you may you know you mentioned the two main characters there, an older guy, younger girl. Yeah. Maybe uh, I think a Thomas and McKenzie is a name that I've, I've heard people tossing around for the, the young girl. Oh, interesting. Yeah, maybe. You know, honestly, Scott, there's really only one thing that came to mind when I thought about who the right people would be. And that is what you need to do, Scott, is you just need to rip the cast from Logan. You take Hugh Jackman as Joel, who is the older guy, and you take Daphne Keene, who played Lara uh in that movie which is the little girl as ellie maybe she's a little bit too young for the ellie role i mean ellie i think is supposed to be like a 13 or 14 year old girl thomasy mckenzie i think a little too old and maybe in my mind particularly a little too tall for ellie just from what i remember from the game i would love i mean i love thomasy mckenzie if she gets cast in the role awesome i'm here for it um but to me the first thing that came to mind honestly was, was logan uh turns out that also is a cross-country road trip type of uh type of movie considering logan's job is to transport this girl across the country uh but uh it's an interesting uh, kind of direct sort of translation of take take the chemistry those two people had and of course the acting chops i think they also displayed and put them into the show and put them into the last of us i think it could work uh for me i think if i if you told me that i had to pick one and couldn't take the other i take hugh jackman as joel i think he'd be a great joel i'd also just really love hugh jackman um but then yeah again there i think there's so many fantastic uh, you know, younger uh, actors and actresses, uh, younger actresses out there right now, especially that I think that it wouldn't be too hard to find someone. And I think it is really important if they can to find someone who's not too old. I mean, I think the whole part of the hook of, of this is that Elliot, when you first meet her and you're first, you know, transporting her, she's someone who needs protecting, right? Like she's someone who, who very clearly needs protecting, even though she doesn't uh, want protecting always, she doesn't always want to be, you know, this very fragile protect, protected item. Uh, but but you know the the truth is she she is and you know Joel Joel is that for her and so I think Hugh Jackman can really play that role well I think he played it perfectly in in Logan when he had the opportunity to show that so if they can get Hugh Jackman on this I'd be uh, I'd be really happy about it as for the child actress Thomasy McKenzie like you said would be fantastic Daphne Keene again maybe maybe not the right choice I think it could work but maybe not the right choice either but beyond that I haven't thought too much about it just because I've been so I guess uh, captivated by the idea of having Hugh Jackman in this role. Yeah, so so Thomas and McKenzie is nineteen. So yeah, th- she she would be too old for the role, which it sounds like you know it is an important thing. However, it would certainly wouldn't be the most egregious we've ever seen uh, in terms of these types of castings. Think about let's think about Florence Pugh last year in Little Women uh, as a 22, 23 year old playing a thirteen year old or whatever. Um, so I, I could yeah, I just think I of the role of Ellie need, just needing to be someone who's short. Yeah, right. Like she's a very small figure. Um, like I could see someone like Thomasine McKenzie honestly playing kind of the older version of Ellie, which is going to be in the last of us part two, but I don't know, man, again, I don't think it like, again, it's not egregious. A 19 year old playing a 13 or 14 year old is really not egregious in this day and age. Uh, but yeah, someone smaller of stature. Cause I mean, I guess Thomasine McKenzie is, is slender and, and, and small overall, but she's quite tall. If I'm, if I'm, unless I'm making that up. Uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm not exactly sure, but that that does sound right to me. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, I, I hope for for your sake again. It sounds like that it's really important to have the the right age actress or at least the right stature actress there. So I hope that they uh, can do that. And it's it's not you know some sort of egregious age casting or anything. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I will say this: that so the the name that was always thrown around when this movie was originally talking about being made was Maisie Williams, mm. who is definitely the right stature and, and kind of played a not dissimilar role in Game of Thrones. The problem is now she's just a little bit older. I mean, she's twenty two now. I mean, she's still again small frame, could probably pull off the role, uh, but again, I think maybe just a little bit too old. But I mean, look, I think she'd be perfect for that role as well. So if they did still end up casting her, which is what a lot of fans were kind of saying should play the who, who they people were saying should play the role um, it, it, when it was in conversation, like probably four or five years ago. Uh, again, I don't think you could go wrong with that either. Yeah. On, only time will tell um, what happens with this, but it's an interesting project to be sure. Uh, okay, Scott, yep. I think that should just about do it for episode 83 of some like it, Scott, where can our listeners find you on Twitter? You can find me at S Shelton two zero one three. And I am at Scarvy Dent. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Uh, if you have and you'd like to support us, please check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash mediapodcasts. Uh, you can support us over there at one of the various tiers. Even if you can't support us, however, uh, we hope you will rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, do all of the things you do on your respective podcast apps. Uh, and we hope that you will be back for our next episode uh, on which we will finally be reviewing uh, the long-delayed Craig Zobel Blumhouse uh, thriller, The Hunt. Uh, but until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.